This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I'm Jody Vanson for Simi This Week, and the hot question of the day is actually referencing what Gordon and I were just talking to at the end of what's happening right now. With the housing affordability issues, well, crisis, actually, in the Lower Mainland, would you consider co-home ownership? If it meant you could get into the market or stay in the market or stay in place, would you consider co-home ownership? Your options are yes, or not sure how that works, or no way, it's too risky. So chime in on this at Jody Vance, Jody with a Y, V A N C E, at CKNW as well. Uh, we'll be collecting your votes over the course of the day and, of course, taking calls to our buzz line, 604 331 Buzz, 604 331 2899. I actually have friends of mine, Kathy and Dawn, who live with Jim and Joan, their friends. They bought a character home, they redid it. They put a wall down the center, turned it into a duplex, stratified it. Years later, now they can sell it as individual homes. At first, I thought, you people, wow, you got to be really tight and know each other super well. In fact, nope. They just had it all done legally and organized it in such a way that everybody felt fully covered. I'm Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah. You heard liberal, liberal MLA Ellis Ross there from our chat last week when I was in on the Linda Steele show. He was rather passionate, to say the least, that protesters actually have it all wrong. Protest potable drinking water for all. Protest against the, the number of suicides happening in, for, with regard to First Nations peoples. Uh, speaking of frustrated, many people calling for authorities to step in as protests are rising to new levels both here locally and across the country. Those who feel passionately that they must stand with Wet'suwet'en, continue their mission, however. And if you watched the viral clips from the B.C. legislature protest last week, you likely saw footage of our next guest. She is uh, rather famous for holding a feather in the path of those who might try and stop her activist message. Chrissy Brett is on the line with us. Uh, Chrissy, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. And you're actually joining us from Oppenheimer Park today. Correct. So you were at the BC legislature for the speech from the throne protests that were happening there. Can you take us back to that day and give us an idea of what drew you to be at the BC legislature and what you experienced there? Um, My support was for the Indigenous youth who were standing out to a government who is bullying Indigenous people all across the province and all across this country. And so I was supporting some youth, um, some who were related to my children and my family, and my support of our elders who were there supporting our youth, one who occupied John Horgan's office outside for months, calling for conversations about our wild salmon and the fish farms that are currently occupying her territory and putting our salmon at risk. Um, Chrissy, for our listeners' sake, can you give a little bit, you said supporting my family, can you give our listeners some context to who, because some might just say, oh, I know that, that's Feather Girl, or, you know, Chrissy Brett, I've seen her speaking at Oppenheimer Park at the camp there. Can you give uh, our listener an idea of of who you are? What is your background? Um, I am Newark. I was past. Um, from the mother who gifted me with life to the mother of my heart through the 60s scoop where the province erased my cultural and First Nations identity for 19 years until I had to apply to become recognized as an Indigenous person again 
here in Canada. So my color and my status didn't change over those 19 years. So I've got the family um, that gifted me with life, who was Newark. I am kin to the English, the Scottish, and the Welsh. And I grew up in and out of foster care. So I have foster siblings from all over Turtle Island who were failed by a government who was supposed to be there to protect them. So when you're protesting and you're looking for reconciliation, you're looking for truth and reconciliation uh, and, and a voice, as well as a seat at the table, I'm, I'm imagining, what is, if you consolidate all, everything from, from fish farms to potable water to pipelines uh, and, and the 60s scoop, can you, can you define it down to what would actually move this meter in a direction that would give you some relief and satisfaction in that your voice is being heard? I think the government needs to start putting action into their words of talking about reconciliation. I mean, they're just words on a piece of paper. So what does it look like? And pardon my naive take, because I really do want to understand and and hear it. What does action look like? What does it, what can they physically do? Well, when we look at the Aboriginal child welfare process, um, our non-Indigenous politicians and our Indigenous leaders back in 2002 signed a Swatson Accord that would transfer 1% of the Aboriginal service delivery dollars into 40% of the service delivery dollars going to Aboriginal services because they recognized 40% of the kids in care were Indigenous at the time. Our leaders, our Indigenous leaders, withdrew their support in 2008 from Aboriginal authorities the day before it was introduced into the legislation and wanted more consultation. And now we have 66% of the kids in care who are Indigenous and we still don't have that equal funding formula to support our Indigenous families who are falling apart. So Chrissy, why did the Aboriginal leaders pull out of that just before it went into action? That would be something that you would have to ask them. Okay. I've asked them continuously. It's a good question. I think that at the end of the day, that our government continuously uses that as a way to not move forward. But we've talked to lobbyists who have suggested more student funding formula so that parents who lose their children into a supportive system that they would direct where their children's dollars would go until they became a continuing custody ward of the province. And that would allow for the children to either remain in the home and parents leave if it's that serious or have a whole bunch of different options available to them. Right now, if your status, all of the state of where your kids go is through conversation with a Department of Indian Affairs chief and council that have sometimes absolutely no contact with their urban relatives who have been lost through residential schools, the 60s kids in the current child welfare system. So quite often they're not a large participant in our urban children that are being lost. You look at Paige's story, an Indigenous child who just 
days after aging out died in the downtown east side. That's a tragic story, there's no doubt. We're with Chrissy Brett, uh, who is an activist, a pro- protester who you might recognize, a girl with a feather, um, who has been at numerous protests or, around the city and, and BC for that matter, over the BC legislature, but often uh, you can be found at Oppenheimer Park uh, advocating on behalf of those who are camping for affordable housing um, and, and, and appropriately spaced housing there. So it seems to me, with what I'm hearing from you here, because we've talked very little about pipelines or coastal gas link or what Soweton um, uh, lands, this is about so much more. Do you think that this is a pivotal moment in Canada as a country when it comes to truth and reconciliation? I think it is. I mean, I think the discussions of the connections with people that are lost on the downtown east side and the man camps that exploit our young Indigenous women. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Prince George in Dawson Creek and had foster siblings who were servicing man camps at the age of 13. So wow. we do have major concerns around nobody listening to the risk that are brought in by government and industry, not only destroying our land, but destroying our people. Easier to turn a blind eye. Can I ask you, I'm I'm up against the clock a bit here, and I want to get this one more question in, because from a protester, from an activist standpoint, do you think that going to Premier John Horgan's private home is crossing a line and going too far? When he is going into British Columbians, private lands every single day and there's no discussion about how horrific that is when he's sending in militant police that are holding guns and looking at our peaceful protectors through a sniper lens. I mean, really, who is the violent one here? That sounds like two wrongs don't make a right. I'm saying that he's been asked to come to a table many different times. When I don't answer my phone, sometimes people show up at my house and say, let's have a conversation. I think asking and demanding that people be at a table to have a conversation rather than continuously ignoring people and their right to have a conversation with those elected leaders. I'm actually very, I got to say, I'm... I'm very surprised by your answer. When we were in the Meekins Nation and we moved and paid for campsites in Goldstream Park, John Horgan said that homeless people don't belong in his jurisdiction. I'd like to hear that quote. You you know what, Chrissy, I don't don't have time to take this down yet another path, but I would like to have you on as a guest again to further discuss this. Clearly, we need an hour, not a 15-minute window here. But I do appreciate your passion and your availability to get your message across. So I thank you for that. You could look at the Colwood Neighborhood Community Association for that quote, and it was on the Neighborhood Association's um, Facebook page where John Horgan had said that. Thank you very much, Chrissy. Thank you. That's Chrissy Brett. She is an activist. She's a protester. She's very passionate about what she believes in, but I'm very surprised to hear her say that, yeah, you did it to us, we're doing it to you, we're showing up at your house. I, I'm ass- making the assumption that protesters see that crossing a line is going to a private home. A- a- anywhere. A- as they wouldn't want anyone to come to their home. Jody Vance in for Simi this week. You know, economic anxiety is real and it's growing. There are so many variables at play right now, both globally and locally. Now think trade issues with China. Think COVID-19. 
That alone is massive. Trump and the lead up to the 2020 presidential election. And now in Canada, we have issues with goods being moved, rail lines blocked, port disruptions, semi-trucks lined up, tankers, 40 tankers in Burrard Inlet waiting to unload their goods. There's just nowhere to put everything right now because everything's slowing to a halt. So time to bring in the man who can give us the 411 on how things are playing out from a market or economic standpoint. Of course, you know him, you love him. He's the host of Money Talks. Michael Campbell joins us on the line. Hi, Michael. Hi, Jody. I was just thinking you saying you know him, you love him. Let's not go. Let's let's get it overboard here. Okay, I know I th- him and I love him. Oh, well, that's very <laughs> very kind go. of you. Others are so so on me. Believe me, you should read my email. Well, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> talk to me about that right now. Uh, yeah. But I I love it. All the perspectives are important. But there's one thing that is undeniable. It is the bottom line of a balance sheet of any kind. Let's talk through some of the economic disruptions. I was even mm-hmm. just listening earlier to the market report, and the Dow had dipped significantly this morning. Yeah, it did. Uh, and that's over Apple. Apple came out and said, you know what, the, you know, thanks to the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, we are going to have a, a, a marked slowdown. Or, or, or They can't even estimate, by the way. Usually you have to estimate what we think our sales are going to be and what we think our profit is going to be, that kind of thing. Yeah. They said they couldn't even estimate it. And I think that's the problem. There's That level of uncertainty is still out there. I'm not sure if the media is as interested in this story as it was going back three weeks, but I don't think there's any reason not to be. I mean, nothing's changed really. Uh, we still know that this is a virus which contagious level, contagion levels are much higher than it was with SARS. Death level uh, lo- uh, lower. Death lower. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, obviously that is good, but they just don't know where it's going to end up. So Apple came out and said uh, yesterday, and it was a holiday in the States, remember also, and said, you know what? Uh, obviously, our first quarter is going to get hit here, but we don't know what to expect even going past that. So Apple took a big drop today. You know, and it was significant. Be- why? Because, by the way, uh, China represents the second biggest consumer market for Apple products, and other companies are going to be hit this way. And then the other side of that is it just reminds us how important China is as a parts manufacturing, right. the so-called supply chain, well, that's going to impact everything. I mean, I, I'm looking at the semiconductor industry that's, you know, 29% of its revenue comes through China. Technology and hardware and, and equipment, about 11% uh, for household and personal products. So this is a global problem. Obviously, you know, the Chinese economy itself is going to be hit. And again, the debate about how hard. But now everybody's estimate seems to be growing. I mean, nobody has backtracked and said, well, you know what? It's not as bad as I thought. Mm. Literally every single thing I've read, and it's been a great deal, has always upped their estimate on the impact, whether you're talking China, the global economy, or individual companies that are big participants, as I say, like Apple is. That is terrifying. Well, I think the uncertainty certainly is. Yes. You know, the uncertainty is terrifying. And, and that's, that's what I think has got people on edge because it's one thing, you know, uncertainty is the worst thing uh, for economies. When people get uncertain, they sort of pull back a little bit. Uh, I'll give you one other example, though, a little more positive impact. Please. If you're in the house buying market. <laughs> well, what's happened is money's uh, running around looking for safety. So it's gone to the bond market. We have not had the, the level of impact on our North American stock markets, as I think many analysts thought it might have. As you say, today's a bad day, but that was, I think, because Apple really put a direct uh, line from the uh, from the virus into their sales. So that grabbed people's attention there. And obviously, Apple's a monster, monster player in, in uh, global stocks, but in North American stocks. But still, the North American stock market has not been impacted, say, the way it has, obviously, in Hong Kong or China, that kind of thing. But money has gone into the bond market. 
market. So what happened? When money goes into the bond market, interest rates go down. So uh, we have interest rates going down on our long-term borrowing, and presto, we've got lower five-year fixed-term rates on our mortgages. So, I mean, that's one little aspect, you know. By the way, the negative far outweighs the positive on this, but I thought I'd just make myself feel better by giving you a positive. <laughs> You're trying to just give us a little teeny tiny silver lining, because Michael yeah. Campbell, we were talking slowing economy, if not recession on the horizon prior yeah. to COVID-19. Well, we're going to get our fourth quarter revised results for Canada, and they're going to be very negative, going to spread into the first quarter here. You alluded to uh, throughout the show, but also just a moment ago, that obviously the rail problems that we're having right now, thanks to the uh, blockades, are also going to impact the Canadian economy. As you said, 40 tankers sitting outside of uh, Vancouver's port just because of the port blockade. But that, of course, uh, I'm reading that there's $850 million worth of manufacturing goods per day not moving anywhere. So we're going to have a little more negative impact. But the other side is this also. Oil prices are down about 20% uh, really since this uh, decline began, or sorry, the uh, coronavirus hit us. And the worries over Chinese demand uh, came to the forefront. They're the biggest buyer of commodities. We could be we could be talking copper right now, but for oil, obviously, is a very important uh, you know uh, export for Canada. So again, we're going to be hit by that alone. So it, there's a variety of things, and it reminds us, by the way, is how integrated our global economy is. A mm-hmm. lot of people might buy their iPhone and not realize how much of it is produced in China. Before, you know, before the end product, you know, where are the uh, rare earths getting sourced for electronic cars? There's just a whole list of things that just remind us how integrated the global economy is. And China being the second biggest economy in the world uh, is going to have an impact because they are definitely going to have an impact. I mean, you're talking about four or five hundred million people on lockdown right now. Mm-hmm. You know, gaming houses closed, theaters closed, restaurants closed. Obviously, you know, the other number that sort of surprised me, or it's just the size of it, is their food prices, uh, the annual inflation on that right now is over 20%. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So what that means is it impacts their uh, obviously discretionary spending. You know, mm-hmm. they've got to pay more for food. They got less, you know, to spend somewhere else. Well, that's going to hit a lot of global luxury brands because brands because China's a big buyer there. We already know that travel's being hit. Seven hundred and fifty thousand uh, ch- uh, people from China are tourists in Canada per year. That's going to be hurt. They're getting hurt because people coming in. Russia, for example, today is now closing its borders to China, period. You know, there's not just the restrictions. This is what's starting to happen. This is the escalation of the worries over this event. How resilient is the Canadian economy to something like this that doesn't seem to be uh, yet plateauing, never mind retracting? Uh, Well, I'm not so sure. Like, for example... Um, if this lasts through our tourist season, mm-hmm. yeah, those same tourists may return a year from now, but I don't think, you know, let's say we lost, I'm just picking a number, by yeah. the way, a billion yeah. dollars worth of spending. Okay, and we lose a billion dollars worth of spending this year. I don't think when the fears abate and there's no other fears on the horizon that that billion comes back full. You know, um, just like China's, uh, people will go back to China. They're just not going to go right now. We hear all these airline flight cancellations. Well, a lot of that was because there was no demand. I mean, who would want to visit Hong Kong right now? Would say, you know what? I'm going to take a quick vacation to Hong Kong. Or how about a cruise in the Far East? How attractive does that look? Uh, Yeah, the cruise line business is not getting very good PR at present. No, and especially into that area of the world, Mm -hmm. it's going to be very interesting. The Olympics are in Tokyo 2020 this summer. I mean, that's not insignificant. 
No, it isn't, especially, as you say, if, you know, when does this peak? I mean, I've heard a, a variety of things, and it's very difficult for us as medical laypersons yeah. to estimate this, but they don't know themselves. It's I was going like to say, I, keeping a secret, I asked you know? Dr. Peter J. Hotez, who was, uh, who was yeah. like the dean of medicine at Baylor and, and was on the, the group, that dev- the um, scientist group that developed the SARS vaccine, and, and I've yes. been sort of checking in, in with him regularly, and he's like, we don't even really know what we're dealing with yet. It is way too soon to pretend that we know how this is going to wrap up. The good news is what you said off the top. With with regard to COVID-19, the death rates are much reduced. 80% yeah. of people who test positive for COVID-19 uh, manage, tolerate the, the symptoms and recover fully. It, it But still, like tell the 1,800 families who have lost somebody to this that, that it's minor, yes, exactly. right? Like there's no. that. So the fears are real. I mean, would you plan to go to Hong Kong right now? Likely not, even no. though every step is being taken and Hong Kong is a financial juggernaut and and also into China I've had a conference canceled that was uh, in June in China you know it's just how long this this lasts as, as I think everyone listening appreciates that you know it's not particularly insightful to say how long it lasts but what I'm reading now is much more um uh, d- dangerous or scary scenarios mm. about how long it can last. You know, there obviously we're going to ask those questions right away. We did, but now it seems to be. Expanding. What are you reading? What are you uh, well, reading? What are you, what are you I, thinking? I've read as many as four million people will be impacted by this. Right. Will be effect- infected. I mean, it's a frightening number. That's a long way away from where we are today, as an right. example. So obviously, that means the virus. I'm reading that it won't peak until May June. Now. You know, that's been extended. Everything seems to be extending out a little bit right now, whether it's, uh, the, you know, the estimates, estimations on the global impact for the economy. So they started at half a percent. Now I'm getting a lot at the one and a half percent, even higher. China's mm-hmm. impact again, you know, 15 percent decline in their their growth. That's an increase from what we read before. You know, how long this is going to last? That's an increase. But I really liked what you said about uh, the medical profession and uh, expert you had on. That's the truth. We don't know yet. The we just don't know. Don't know yet. But so we, it's we, that uncertainty back to the full scale. I'll tell you one last thing. Yep. I know you got to go. Yep. Yep. Is uh, this is a real danger for the economy? The economy is uh, sorry. The stock market. I meant to say mm. the stock market. The stock market's come into all time highs. It's it, so far it has ignored really largely in North America. I'm only talking ignored the virus. But the impact, I think maybe Apple kicked that off yesterday. So yeah. as we go through the first quarter, start getting first quarter results, uh, I just think it's a, it's a fairly big flag to make sure you're not taking more risk than you are aware of within your stock portfolio. What we're going to do is we're going to make sure we're listening to Money Talk Saturdays on there the Chorus Network at 8.30 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, Michael Campbell, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Jody. Jody Vance in for Simi this week and joined by Sandy Garasino, good friend of the program, former Crown Prosecutor and columnist with the National Observer. You should definitely read Sandy's work. Um, follow along on Twitter as well if you want to be entertained, particularly in the last week. Thanks for coming all the way in, Sandy. Thanks for having me on, Jody. What the hell happened last week? Holy moly. Well, you know, we bombshell went off, especially when, when with the railroads and, you know, national, critical national infrastructure uh, grinding to a halt. Um, a huge, huge issue. Huge issue, hot topic, one that is ever more difficult to sort of dance around. And then when you decide to wade straight through it, as you often do, you cut through the noise with uh, your perspective, your Mm -hmm. opinion, your Mm -hmm. point of view, Mm -hmm. learned point of view, I might Mm -hmm. add, uh, sometimes can really ruffle feathers. 
Um, and it, it's fascinating to follow along because you're, you're rather fearless. I have great respect for you, as you know. Um, today, we wanted to bring you in to, to speak about something that I actually saw roll by on Twitter. People speaking about protesters being funded by some special interest groups, either here in Canada or, or in the United States or elsewhere, that are paying protesters to forward an agenda. Your mm-hmm. thoughts? Have a lot of thoughts. Uh, I we have, have two segments. <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, number one, I have actually spent months and months and months delving into uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of global uh, philanthropic grants uh, in all subject areas, health, education, human rights, foreign aid, environmental, climate, everything, to try and... Uh, disentangle the what I consider to be a lot of misinformation around this issue of foreign funding of environmentalists because we do have international grants that have gone to uh, an initiative called the Tar Sands Campaign. There's been about $40 million over the last 10 years, uh, which it works out to about $4 million, $4 million. A, a, a year um, to about 100 groups or roughly that um, in, in all of that time. So this has become a huge hot-button issue. My own take on this, having having um, unpacked all of this, and I've written about this in the National Observer, is that, number one, there's nothing actually unusual about this when you look at the entire um, constellation of international philanthropic grants. The largest international funder, the la- largest foreign funder of Canadian uh, organizations uh, is the U.S. government, which has funded over $660 billion of... Um, uh, or sorry, bill, bill, no, sorry, $660 million. million. So, take just that over half a billion. Over half a billion. Which um, is still a lot Which of is money. still a lot of money. $660 million have flown, has, has come into Canadian organizations from the U.S. government. The next is Bill and Melinda Gates at half a, a billion dollars. <clears throat> so... Forty million over ten years is is a paltry Drop. sum. Yeah. It's only about two percent of all foreign grants to Canadian organizations have gone to environmentalists. So this is not an issue. Okay, now let's get to the coastal gas link issue. Okay, it's not the oil sands campaign. It's not the tar sands campaign. It's and, and it's a British Columbia issue. It's a British Columbia. The uh, Wet'suwet'en are are um, a a small organization. They've been doing their own fundraising. I have not seen anything remotely suggesting that there is a large foreign interest here at all. There have been grants. I I looked them up. You will see a few grants over the last five to 10 years, uh, some of it over Wet'suwet'en governance initiatives. About three years ago, there was a a few, uh, about $130,000 in multiple grants that went to um, their their, uh, constitutional discussions about governance internally. Uh, But there's, but that is all I've seen. There is some money that has come into Skeena Defense, but it's not. It's just not there. I've looked. It's we'll probably see a little bit. I'm going to say one other thing. This is largely, in my opinion, no matter what position you take about the plus or the minus, what side you're on. I consider this foreign funding 
um, narrative s- narrative to be a distraction to get Canadians angry so that they won't get in the way of a project that is designed to partner with Shell, Petronas, PetroChina, Mitsubishi, Korea Gas on the LNG project, not to mention that TC Energy is a $68 billion company that operates in the U.S. and Mexico. All of these interests are international. There are hundreds of billions of dollars in market capital um, in the ownership behind this. There are billions and billions, there's billions of dollars in foreign um money behind the resource sector. So it's a, it's a, it's a meaningless distraction. And we've been talking about for geez, years, it feels like, the shell game that is gas prices, that are gas prices mm. here in the Lower Mainland, mm-hmm. when, you know, Cherry Point, right yep. over there, and we keep getting told that we can't get it from over there. It's like, wait a minute, yeah. this, isn't, this isn't adding it's up. Not but if you depress up. the cost or the, the price mm-hmm. of Canadian natural resources, yep. you know, there's money to be made. Mm-hmm. There's money to be made somewhere. Someone's making money off of this misinformation. That's where my head goes. As opposed to somebody is funding protesters in British Columbia mm-hmm. about this coastal gas link pipeline. So is there... Well, it's really hard to, you know, with there's no transparency about all of this. Of course, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, CAP, which has been pushing this narrative itself, uh, the, the Canadian oil and gas sector is 45% foreign-owned. So I don't know where they get off saying that, you know, Indigenous communities have to fund themselves with bake sales and bingo halls. I mean, this, this is, there's, there's a ridiculousness about this. All of these companies face um, objections and opposition from indigenous communities wherever they operate, in the United States, Mexico, everywhere. This is, this is an international issue. Climate is an international issue, but indigenous rights are, an, are now an in, a growing international issue. No question about that. You, do, can you reiterate, you said the Canadian oil and gas sector is 45% foreign-owned? That's according to Stats Canada. That's kind of a mic drop statistic, isn't it? Well, yes, and it is the... Now, I will say this. This is as of 2017, and we know that there's been a huge exodus of um, foreign capital and investor capital out of of Canada. But I was looking... And the government bought a pipeline. And the government bought a pipeline. But I was looking at TC Energy itself. Uh, I was looking at its top 20 shareholders, which uh, look to be uh, 50% of, of all of their ownership, and that was... Uh, almost half foreign ownership right there, the TC Energy, which is the proponent in this. This is, a, this is such a confused welter of misinformation. It's muddied. Canadians it's haven't, yeah. and, and, but, the, but I think that the, the objective here is basically to discredit opposition. We're going to pause here and continue our conversation with Sandy Garasino on the other side, because I think there is something to be said for just talking through the clarity piece, what you were saying about how the oil and gas industry and and the standoffs with First Nations people, globally speaking, wherever those Indigenous people might live, mm-hmm. uh, the arguments that it, this is only happening here and that the way the Canadian government or politicians across the country independently or police forces are managing this is somehow uh, different or standoffish, comparatively speaking. We will speak with uh, Sandy Garasino, as I mentioned, former Crown Prosecutor, but also columnist with the National Observer as we continue here on The Simi Sarah Show.
Jody Vance in for Simi this week, continuing with Sandy Garasino, former Crown Prosecutor and columnist with the National Observer. I kind of wish our cameras were on during that commercial break. We talked so much through. It's like, we could just play that <laughs> back. We could just play that back. Because I get people, you know, as soon as I posted that you were coming on the show, I put on Twitter, mm. uh, you know, Sandy Garasino is going to come mm. on and speak to this. And what is behind, uh, is there funding behind these protesters? Because the I get a lot in my email inbox, who's paying for these people? How can they basically have a full-time job standing in the way at the corner of Broadway and Camby or at the BC legislature, standing on the Pitt River Rail Bridge? How can they afford to do this? Somebody's paying them. And it's like, well, or they're motivated by their passion for mm-hmm. the message that they're doing. Like, maybe they're just a motivated Canadian. It could be, you know, many things other than somebody is paying them to do it to further a different agenda? Or is there an agenda there, which is what we wanted to bring you in to look Mm -hmm. at? Because as a former Crown Prosecutor, I know you to be a woman of due diligence. Mm -hmm. And this is a bigger picture, Sandy. It is a bigger picture, and it's an international picture. And one of the things that we talked about in the break, Jody, was that uh, this is... This narrative is being pushed everywhere where industry and government want to push back on um, either human rights or environmentalists or indigenous uh, groups. Anybody who is getting in the way of major projects, they find themselves being discredited often by their own governments. And I point to the fact that Bolsonaro just a few months ago when the Amazon was ablaze said that the environmentalists set the fires over foreign funding. Uh, In Russia, you know, major gas interests there, and Putin has forced anyone who is accepting international grants, international aid, to register as a foreign agent, and the Russian translation for that is spy or traitor. In India, um, there was a Greenpeace advocate who was scheduled to uh, go to speak to um, a UK and English um, uh, parliamentary committee about uh, UK mining interests and what they were doing over human rights in India. And the Indian government uh, cancelled her flight, forced her off, actually literally forced her off the airplane and made and put her on a no-fly list, effectively branding her as a suspected terrorist. Oh my God. Uh, and cancelled the licenses of 20,000 NGOs. The attack on organized opposition... Uh, to any industrial projects is international in scope and the foreign funding narrative is the theme song of all of them. It's focus grouped. It's focus grouped. I'm, it's, I have no doubt at all that it is market tested and focus grouped. And the idea is to make you mad so that you won't get in the way of PetroChina and Petronas and Royal Dutch Shell and ExxonMobil and Chevron who have projects that, are, that they want to pursue here in Canada and, and that investors and various governments are going, to, are going to make money from. And it just blows my mind. Like when you use the Uh, example of the rainforest Mm -hmm. and how the government could say that it's actually the environmentalists that are setting the Amazon ablaze and people buy it and people buy it. Yep. That's the gullibility piece. But This is the thing about anytime you, you push the foreign button. Yeah. The anger. and And the thing that has been so ironic in all of this is that the foreign interests here, if you were to add them up, I mean, everybody talks about these large foundations. These foundations are, are in scale, 
puny the amounts of money of their own money that they that any of them have given to environmental or indigenous oppositions of projects here in Canada is minuscule like less than half a percent on average of their total budgets have yeah. they given to canadian issues or or at all but the international uh, industry, the resource industry, is phenomenally larger, like spectacularly larger. The interests here are beyond imagining. And it couldn't be a falser narrative. And it couldn't be, um, in my opinion, a more dishonest attack. Why is it so loud then? Why is it so prevalent on social media, in particular Twitter, where you can literally find almost every time you scroll through, depending on, I guess, who you follow, if you're following news organizations, you will see a quote somewhere, mm-hmm. somehow, that says, you know, the interests behind this yeah. are that. Mm-hmm. You know? but, but that's exactly what Twitter is for. Right. That's exactly how social... We are being manipulated. Yeah. The, uh, the, I mean, all of these pl- social media platforms are actually literally designed to neurologically trigger anger yeah. to make us angry and and it's working and politicians and industry knows full well that if you can get people angry and make them feel attacked by outsiders then they'll then they'll go protectionist they'll just, they'll just go yeah. protectionist and yeah. they'll and they'll settle in and they're they're going to back petrochina all the way. <laughs> and you've been studying this for how long? Like, this isn't something you went, oh, I think I'll do this in my spare time, flip, flip, flip. Well, I have been looking at this issue for a very, for, for many years because I've been aware of it because I'm concerned about our rights and freedoms, mm-hmm. our ability as Canadians to freely advocate in the public, public realm and how people are being discredited for doing that because they may receive grants. So I've been concerned about this for years, but probably for the last year, um, I have poured through, like I say, millions of grants involving hundreds of billions of dollars to just get the entire global picture. So I, I have looked at it. Yeah, you've done your due diligence. And I thank you for sharing your perspective with us today. Uh, it's important that we do. And oftentimes I'll now get emails from people going, you know, Sandy says, blah, 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 you should do the other side. We do all sides. We're reflective of uh, trying to get to the truth here on CKNW. And uh, I think a very learned and studied uh trusted guest of ours coming in to give perspective is important because it's a nugget that we can think about. So when the narrative rolls by on our Facebook page or on our Twitter feed, we can go, ah, that's what that is. I wrote about this in the National Observer. Check it out. Dismantling the foreign funding argument. There you go. Sandy Garasino, a columnist with the National Observer and former Crown Prosecutor. Always great to have you on. Thanks for this. Thanks, Judy. And this next topic uh, touches many of us. A new poll from Research Co. says a majority of BC parents are stressed by work and finance. Sounds like me. Does it sound like you? Uh, but it gets a little broader than that. And to discuss, we bring in Mario Canseco. Hi, Mario. Hi, Jody. Great to be with you. Good to be with you, too. Oh, I can totally relate to uh, parental stress. Certainly sandwich generation stress is my reality. But now I'm looking ahead. I've only got a 12-year-old at this point, but eventually he's going to want to leave the nest, or at least that's my goal. But will he have to leave the city? That's my fear. Well, that is the one thing that really shocked me about these findings. When we asked about uh, the worries of BC parents last year, uh, we had about 40% in Metro Vancouver who were foreseeing their kids moving away from their municipality. This year, it's up to 66%. So essentially, two-thirds of Metro Vancouver parents who have a child at home between the ages of 0 and 18 
expect their child to not live near them uh, when they have to move away from home. What does that say about what the crisis that we're living in when the numbers are that high? Well, it is definitely problematic uh, on a wide range of, uh, of areas. I mean, one of them, obviously, political. You know, we mm-hmm. see a high level of support for the housing taxes. We see people that are expecting the housing market to be a little bit better. Uh, but we continue uh, to get this uh, evidence uh, from BC parents who are saying this isn't really going as quickly as we would hope for. And we are very concerned that our kids are going to move away. So when you make that emotional connection with something that is so close to your family, it's very tough for any, any politician to tell you that things are changing. Interesting. We're talking about this on Budget Day. Hey, Mario. Yes. Mario Canseco <laughs> is the president of Research Co. And you've got a couple other stats in here that really, they're kind of relieving to read because our listeners are going to say, well, I'm not alone then because I am stressed about this. We can, it's almost like a checklist of financial stress or family-related stress or housing-related stress. Can you go through some of the numbers uh, with us? Yes, the, the number one thing that uh, BC parents are experiencing frequently or occasionally is uh, work-related stress, 58%. So uh, things that are happening at the office, working late, working on weekends, uh, 57% are experiencing financial stress, 53% family-related stress, and 51% housing-related stress. So more than half of BC parents are experiencing any of these four kinds of stresses over the uh, last few months. And, and it's... Uh, quite interesting because there's not a lot of difference. I think there's definitely issues that are combined, uh, but to see work and finance at the top of the list was really eye-catching. It is, because it is, like you say, it is majority. So almost three in five parents, parents, not not millennials, not kids, not, you know, those sort of footloose and fancy free, but actual three in five parents in B.C., 58% 58% saying it's very difficult or moderately difficult just to save a little bit of cash in a bank account. That is the number one thing that we continue to see here. Uh, we hear about residents who are having difficulties paying for day-to-day expenses at mm. 44%, childcare at 42%. We know how expensive this can be in, in specific areas of BC. And also transportation. You know, we haven't really been talking a lot about gas prices, but they're creeping up again. And there's definitely a, 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 an issue here for most of these parents who are taking kids to specific uh, things in the afternoons, for instance. Uh, But the number one challenge for parents is savings. Uh, 58% say they just can't find a way to save money in a bank account because of all of the financial stress that they're experiencing. And Mario, as you said, a lot of these are tied together because as I'm going through them, as I mentioned, I have a 12-year-old. He is going to high school next year, Mm -hmm. and I've just reached the point where I don't Mm -hmm. need childcare. And that is a huge difference in the bottom line for any family. Well, it's a big issue. You know, it's been consistently one of the top-ranked issues for uh, BC parents when we've asked about this. And there's definitely a high level of support for making some changes. Uh, the idea of emulating the system that Quebec has had for a while mm-hmm. uh, is definitely something that BC parents would like to see happening. And there's been a little bit of an investment. Let's see what the uh, BC government says today about this. There's been a little bit of a change, but it's nowhere near the thing that we imagine when it comes to having a, a system here in BC that is going to be similar to the one they have in Quebec, where they only pay a handful of dollars a day. So we need to go back to the 65%. 65% of parents say it is very likely or moderately likely that their child or any one of their children will have to move away from the municipality where they currently live due to the high cost of living. 
It's a huge issue, and it's definitely big in Vancouver, Metro Vancouver, I should say, at 66%. Wow. Uh, the one area where it's not an issue as much is in the Fraser Valley at 48%. So you continue to see parents in the Fraser Valley who say, yes, things are tough, but I do expect my child to be able to stay here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the numbers are higher in southern British Columbia, 69%. We've seen how the value of some of the homes in the Okanagan has been uh, higher in, in, in the last few months than, than it was two years ago. So maybe that has something to do with it. Northern British Columbia, 73%. Even Vancouver Island at 68%. So there's not a lot of situations here where the regional disparities uh, are definitely here. And, you know, this is one of them. If you're in the Fraser Valley, you're expecting your child to stay where you are once they are old enough to leave the house. Uh, but if you live in any other part of BC, you're not as confident. It's interesting, Mario. And I open up the phone lines to the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899, if you have a story to tell about the affordability with regard to where you lived. Because being a born and raised Vancouverite, at the age of 10, I'm 52. So at the age of 10, my parents made the choice, even though my mom had grown up on the west side of Vancouver, um, you know, public school, kids high. Uh, we, we all wanted to live in the neighborhood where the rest of our family lived. And they said, you know, we will never be able to take a vacation if we have to purchase a home. This is in 1980 or 19, yeah, 1983 when I was 10. And, you know, here we are in two, 2020. And the problem still exists, but just at an exponentially larger level. Well, it's definitely, it, it really continues to be one of the highest uh, issues uh, of concern for residents. It's been dropping a little bit. I think we haven't uh, seen the numbers that we saw maybe two, three years ago where you had 70% of residents saying that it was the number one issue facing right. BC. Uh, the numbers are lower, but it continues to be something that is regionally based. And, and what's interesting to me looking at this is this is the area that is definitely having the largest level of concern when it comes to housing, Metro Vancouver. And it's not something that is changing dramatically from one municipality to the other. Whether you live in Surrey or in Port Moody or in Vancouver, you're still worried about what is going to happen with your children. Will they be able to live a couple of blocks away or will they be a couple of towns away? Yeah, it's that house poor feeling and kids can't even get into the market. Mario, thanks for uh, running us through these numbers. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Jody. Anytime. That's Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. And you can check uh, this research out at the Re- Research Co. website. Jody Vance in for Simi this week, and Claire Allen, CKNW contributor, is in studio with me. Hello. Hey, Jody. You've been working hard on this next project. I've I been have. very much looking forward to what you've learned. I've got a question for you. Okay. Would you ever co own a home? Yes. Oh, me- you know what? After doing this, I agree. But let's. Explain what this okay, is. Okay, explain first. it all first. So a recent Ipsos read poll found that 24% of millennials actually are consider, would consider the idea of co-owning a home. But like I said, I was really curious about what this is. So I caught up with an expert who could tell me a little bit more about this idea. My name is Noam Dolgan. I've been in real estate for more than seven years. Before that, I worked in sustainability education, environmental education, and community development. So I come at real estate with a mindset around community building and sustainability from the beginning. Uh, And two years ago, uh, we launched Coho BC, which is the co-ownership initiative to encourage people to look at co-ownership as a model to create affordability, sustainability, and community. So I really wanted to know from Gnome how it works. Basically, co-ownership is a very common practice already. So co-ownership is not a new model at all. Uh, 
and in, in this case, what we're doing is we're allowing people, either friends, family, or even strangers, to co-own property. Uh, in this case, you would own a property that is not stratified. You would own a house together or, or a unit together, and both your names would be on title, or however many people are in the group. Both your names would be on the mortgage, uh, and then you would create a partnership agreement or a co-ownership agreement that dictates between you how you share responsibility, how you share space, what to do if somebody has a financial shortage, what to do down the road when, when somebody wants to sell their share because they have gotten married or they've had to move or whatever the situation might be. That's the key piece for yes. most people. It's like, wait a minute, wait, that sounds messy. No, you do need to have a lawyer involved in this. This isn't just something you draft up yourself. Yeah, you don't agree. Like, no, high five. No, yeah, okay. this isn't a handshake deal. No. no. So Noam told me that the building that we probably are familiar with that lends itself perfectly to this agreement is the Vancouver Special. He said one family could live upstairs and the other family could take the downstairs area. And he also mentioned that he's seen a group of people buy a home with a laneway home in the back and divide the finances and costs um, appropriately. Um, so I was wondering, like, who's doing this? Like, who, who are the people you're seeing that are buying this? Who's participating in, in, in co-ownership? The most common groups at the moment are intergenerational families. So, for example, you'll get parents and children co-owning property. Uh, in Vancouver, a great example for that is a, a new house with laneway house, or a house with laneway house in general. So if you have a downsizing family, you know, downsizing parents who can live in an 800 square foot laneway house in the back and, sh- and allow the main home to be owned by their children, um, you know, to raise their grandchildren, etc. You allow family to stay close together. You, you, while the kids are young, you have grandparents as support. And when the grandparents need support, you're, you're there right to, to take care of them. So that's a model we're seeing a lot of is, is intergenerational families and also siblings. Uh, doing duplexes together. Uh, we see a, a lot of uh, young families buying together. That Vancouver special, a duplex model that I mentioned, is a very appealing. So two friends, in this case, oftentimes, uh, who have kids around the same age, would buy together uh, to share a home in that way. Uh, what you're seeing a lot of interest as well from is uh, we like to call golden girls. Um, so downsizers, retirees, not just female, uh, but looking... At, these folks are really looking to, to age in place, not have to move again later in life, not have to move into institutions. So the idea of having community, people to look out after you, people to, you know, when you're having some health issues, to take care of you is very appealing. Uh, so and that's an area where we're seeing strangers start to come together and, and build um, housing uh, in groups of three to, to six, you know, adults, uh, 60 plus. Uh, who can live together for, you know, for their golden years. So that's an idea you've heard before. I know I, you it had is. said that. My girlfriend, Kathy, um, she and her husband bought a place with friends of theirs mm-hmm. and ended up stratifying it. They took cool. a big character home and yeah. turned it into a duplex. And I've talked to her for years now, because our kids are tight, mm-hmm. of, of buying a piece of property and having independent, almost like a, a group of coach houses. So yeah. everybody gets their own space. I don't know right. if I'd necessarily That's live on top of For something. sure. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, it's it's a, for some people and it's not for some other right. people. But the benefits to co-ownership is that you know who your neighbors are before you get into the deal, right? Point. When you buy the property, you can save money and get more space yep. because uh, you could probably get a bottom half of a home or a laneway home and you share other resources and it gives you a sense of community. Yeah. But of course, Jody, there are some challenges. The challenges have come down to financing. 
uh, and, re- and exit strategy. At the end of the day, it, you know, it, it's almost all advantages uh, ex- except for when you want to when you want to finance and you get the money for it, you have to put all anyone who's on title has to be on the mortgage, which means you are all on the hook for each other's portion of the property if anything goes horribly wrong, if the market tanks or if somebody um, disappears on you, etc. Um, so that is, that's the downside. Now, there, you, you can prepare for that. Uh, and this is where a good partnership agreement and a good lawyer who's done this many times before is essential. Because with good planning and a good partnership agreement, you can protect yourself. That's a key. Yes, exactly. And so I asked, like, what happens if there's a disagreement between two owners? Like, not just, you know, um, the, what he discussed in that, in that clip, but like, what if, you know, tempers start to rise or something like that? Relationship breakdown. Exactly. And Noam's answer actually really surprised me. Yeah, you lay out your responsibilities, each one's responsibilities, you lay out your standards. Um, and this is why one of the things we even suggest to people is that they meet with a lawyer to, to, to figure out the questions they have to ask, and then they meet with a couples counselor, you know, so that you can basically answer these questions. What are, what's going to be our dispute resolution process? How are we going to make sure we have consensus? How are we going to make sure we, you know, uh, we agree to stuff? And we, do, and we disagree, uh, how are we going to deal with that? So absolutely, there's a process hilarious. I know, right? Couples counseling. Brilliant, though. It is. I mean, it makes sense because you need to look down the road mm-hmm. to see what could arise. So with uh, home prices continuing to increase, Jody, no one believes that this co-ownership is something that we will continue to see throughout the Lower Mainland. I mean, it's been going on, as I said, for a long time, uh, but it's been growing recently as prices get higher and as people feel more and more of a sense of social social isolation. Uh, co-ownership becomes increasingly appealing uh, across the board. Might be the only way to get into the market, exactly. too. Exactly. And he also said that until there's a shift in how neighborhoods are zoned, allowing for like duplexes or and stuff like that in traditionally single zoned, like single, single fam- family, family homes. Yeah. Exactly. He thinks that co-ownership will be something that, that people will look for. So he, you know, it could be coming to a street near you. Um, but if you really want to learn more about this, yep. you can learn more at uh, Noam Dolgan's uh, website. It's Coho BC, so C O H O B C one word dot com, and he breaks all the information down there. His contact is on there, and you can learn all about this really cool initiative. Great stuff, Claire. Thank you for that. Thanks, Jody. And uh, this next conversation, I'm, I'm going to have to warn you that I might get a little involved or passionate or opinionated about it because I I'm I'm in on this story. I'm frustrated by it. I'm invested. Well, so are you as a taxpayer, because have you looked around and seen issues on city streets, Vancouver in particular, streets, sidewalks, things falling into disrepair? Jordan Armstrong, Global BC reporter and anchor, did a story on uh, the Granville Strip sidewalk, actually, being all but impassable. And personally, I've lodged numerous complaints to the city of Vancouver app that you can take a picture and then you can start a file and then you get a number. I, I don't even know how many numbers I have on this one sidewalk that is impassable for somebody who has any sort of disability. It's really quite something and and seems like it's a no-brainer that the city would fix it. Um, It's been a lake for the last eight months and and really eight months of the year. So um, we're learning that the streets and sidewalks operating budget was actually cut by 30% back in 2009 when capital investment focused on other things for 10 years. You can fill in that blank. 
even when projects that were the focus during that decade, bike lanes, are starting to show significant wear and tear. Yes, I am talking about bike lanes, but I know that's going to fill up my inbox when that's not the point here. It's not to bike lane or not to bike lane. It's the fact that even bike lanes are falling into disrepair. Garbage, sidewalks, roads, potholes. These are all basics that we need to keep on top of that other cities in the lower mainland seem to be able to do. So we put out the call to Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councilor, who always answers our calls. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us where are we at? Why are uh, clearly I'm frustrated. Like my face is flushed. I'm like, what? I'm screaming from the rooftops. I want this fixed, like the basics fixed. Why do we keep talking about what are we going to do about a golf course? I don't want the golf course right now. I want to fix my sidewalks and not have potholes on every street in the downtown core. Uh, I, I feel your pain because I feel like I'm fighting the same battle at City Hall. And uh, for those that don't know, I did bring a motion to council last October and it was called, not surprisingly, Back to Basics. And that was really in response to just going out and about in the city and hearing from residents all the time about the state of our streets and our street medians and our sidewalks. And it's not just a, you know, sort of a pride issue in terms of being the fact that this is Vancouver and we're so fortunate to live here and it was, it's a beautiful city and it, we always felt it was well kept up. It's also a safety issue for people getting around. And I heard from people overwhelmingly. And when we brought this motion to council, I thought that that was a given. It was a slam dunk. And yeah. it wasn't. And we had this conversation at council where I had fellow councillors who tried to water it down and take out language. And, we, I, you know, it said... Let's elevate the attention that's given to our street repair and our sidewalks and keep them safe and well-maintained. And they want to take that language out to say, we'll maintain or improve. We'll look at options to maybe allocate some funds in the budget to do it. You know, we'll, we're, we wanted to have language in the budget that said, this is a core thing that the city does. This is what we're responsible for. They wanted to take that out. Why, though, Sarah? Like, why would they want to take that out? Are these, are these uh, meetings in camera? Or can we know who the councillors are who would appeal back the specificity of this? No, these are these are public meetings. These are not confidential. This is a public motion that I brought forward, and it was Councillor Boyle who had uh, made a number of these amendments and was supported by some councillors, and we lost on some of these amendments. So, Did you get the, a reason behind that? You don't get a direct reason. I think it's really a question of councillors wanting to focus on other priorities, which I don't think aligns with what the citizens of Vancouver want us to do, and I don't think it aligns with what our responsibilities are under the Vancouver Charter. Um, How and are that's, the basics not a priority? They are, they are absolutely a priority. And I think when you don't ca- take care of those, that's when you get division and frustration in the city and you get a false conversation and narrative around pedestrians or bike lanes. And it's not what it's about. It's about actually taking care of the basic infrastructure for everybody. Um, and but the bike are, lane at the corner of Burrard and Pacific is crumbling. Like I was thinking about this on my drive home yesterday because Ben Dooley, our producer, and I, Ben happens to be in a wheelchair. And I'm like, how is this for you to navigate? It was not fun. He never yeah, complains, I, though. Yeah, I was looking through my email this morning and I thought back, I, uh, I got a lot of email in October and I just got one because this has come up again and we've had a conversation and I was also talking about snow removal um, for pedestrian walkways recently. Yes. Got a, uh, an email from a lady in Yaletown, young mom with a stroller, and she said, it's in my neighborhood. Like, I can't get my stroller over some of the broken street areas and, and cobblestones. I have a 97-year-old neighbor who can't take out her wheelchair. And people are really feeling it. I just don't think that we're putting enough funding into the basics and maintaining it. And it is important to invest in infrastructure and improve that. But we also Tax need to dollars. upkeep yeah. the infrastructure that we already have. And that's so frustrating because we do look to other jurisdictions around Metro Vancouver, around the Lower Mainland, and somehow other cities 
are managing to pass basic need um, motions mm-hmm. without there being pushback on the language. Because you, you fix the sidewalk. Okay, yeah, let's fix the sidewalk. Well, yeah, and that's, that's my biggest frustration. And I, I think that that's where we should start with the budget and build it and build up the basics and build up and then say, okay, what can we do in addition? Because we have a huge amount of priorities and a lot of social issues in the city and nobody would negate that. But you've got to do what you're actually legally obligated to do as a city first and yes. then layer on top of that. Can we speak to that just briefly here? What are considered the basic fundamental needs and, the, and, the, and what City Hall must do before having passion projects that take you here, there, and everywhere. I'm, I'm going to say city streets, garbage. Yeah. yeah, if you look at it, uh, it's taking care of roads. So it's basically think about you know people getting around, the ability for people, goods, and services to move. So it's mm-hmm. roads, sidewalks, street medians. It's garbage. It's recycling. It's uh, community infrastructure. So it's investing in things like community centers and pools and rinks and fitness facilities. Public schools. Uh, schools goes under provincially school under yeah. the school board, so yeah. not not city of Vancouver's responsibility. But right. it's all those basic things that you would expect Part your city to do. It's 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 kind of the it's the bricks and mortar of the city. So when we're thinking about uh, the issues that we independent, I'm just one citizen. I just happen to be in front of a microphone, so I get to go. Come on, can we get a Vancouver City Councilor on here so I can talk? And thank goodness you're there to put forward these motions on on our behalf and you and I know each other uh, because of working like this Mm -hmm. I could text you and say you know who do I need to call Sarah but that shouldn't be well you 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 can absolutely and you know people DM me on social media they post they email all the time yeah but that's not that shouldn't be we should have a city that actually focuses and prioritizes on this and that's what we're not seeing and I think that's the biggest concern that I have is that we're having to try to chip away at this and, and beg for dollars towards basic services at the same time that our property taxes are going up and people don't understand that dichotomy. That They're like, that doesn't make sense to me. It really doesn't because it's what are we spending on if not the basics? We're already not hitting the basics and now our costs are going up. There's only one taxpayer and like the mother in Yaletown can't get her stroller uh, out on the street. Yeah, you know. and it, it impacts people, it, it impacts seniors, it impacts, it creates social isolation for people, it goes against all of sort of the bigger global aspirations that we have around being a walkable city and creating complete communities if people can't get out and support that infrastructure. And um, one thing that happened at council our last session, which was really interesting, is we had a contract award, and it was to do curb ramps, um, to catch up on the backlog of 600 curb ramps of the city. So you think when you come off a sidewalk, and if you're not able-bodied, if you're... Um, in a wheelchair, like your producer, if you're a mom with a stroller, if you have a whatever whatever challenge that you might have, it's hard to get on and off those. We have a backlog of 600, so we had a contract to work for $7 million to get a company to come in and do that. Makes sense. Yeah, and I stood up and I said, I can't think of something better that we can be doing. Super supported um, you know, by the public. And our city manager stood up and said, wow, this represents a real shift in direction for us to start prioritizing the pedestrian. And I thought wow, this is where we should be already. And we need that pedestrian to be as, as equally as important as our other modes of transit. Absolutely. Amen to that. Why we're still even looking at that backlog? Because that's been around for some time. Yeah, and so, if we catch like, up on the backlog, which will happen over four years, yeah. so it's not immediate, um, and we'll still be at a slower pace in terms of bringing those on side compared to other cities like Calgary and across the country. So you said your motion to get back to basics was defeated. It passed. Oh, it passed. It passed. With new language. But it had some watered-down language, which made it a little bit less of a priority. So you get less funds at budget time, and it provides some wiggle room for councillors to stand up and sort of say, well, I'd rather support this project. Right, so kick it down the road. Uh, yeah, just, just, water it, road. just water it down and sort of say, well, you know, maybe what we're doing is fine already, and we don't need to elevate the priority on this. 
What does a frustrated taxpayer do? What can uh, a citizen a do? A frustrated taxpayer, I think, really speaks out. Um, and I was amazed at the response to this one. And it's, it wasn't about Canada Place. It was about the fact this is something people are feeling across the city. Potholes. I'm really on potholes now. Um, you know, I, I, I walk, I take transit, I drive. Like most people, they're multimodal. Yep. And I'm driving the other day along, and I, w- I was counting how many roads I had to divert on and switch lanes because my car was going in and out of these deep, deep rifts. And not just on streets where we're doing construction, and you can say, okay, well, that's a moment different. in time. Yeah. It's a little different. But that's consistent across the city, too. And I just think that we're deteriorating. We might be neighbors, or it is a systemic problem. Because I also divert around the potholes that almost, almost flatten my tires. Yeah. Like, the uh, hit is so hard. I cover a lot of ground in this job, so I get to to see a lot of different parts of the city. And I can assure you, I see that on east side, west side, north, south. uh, I've seen it everywhere. Everywhere. Will you keep us posted on this? Absolutely. If there's any more movement, and if you're frustrated by it, where do we go? We go to the website? Do we we write to our councillors? Email your mayor and council all the time. Um, And and email it in. And and I hate to say that. Report it to 311, because the stats matter. That's the city's app to connect. And that's how we get funding for projects. We're able to say there's a demonstrated need. So don't stop doing that. Okay, so I've I've got 10 in from... My lake out, outside my house, so I can. I'll just keep going to three one one on that until keep, somebody keep keep doing it. Um, but email it. your mayor and council too, and tell them that this matters. All and, of and that is on the city of Vancouver website. All of their email addresses are right there, one click, and it opens up your email with it already lined in there. It's very user friendly, I have to say. Uh, so thank you for this, Sarah. Much much appreciated. No worries. Great to see you. Talking about social media, and uh, we've all witnessed one, if not been part of one of these Twitter storms. Uh, they can be rather benign in in their sort of first post, a benign post that all of a sudden suddenly turns into a, a crazy back and forth that can then leave the most innocent of posters feeling like they've been gaslit. There are trolls and then there are bullies. The prior are often just out to muddy the matter up and the latter is more about tossing grenades with very little backup and then pivoting to generalizations and whataboutism to avoid any fact check on their hot take. So if you're nodding your head like, yeah, yeah, no, I've either witnessed that or I've been a part of one of those, I want to introduce you to, if you've not met him before, our next guest who's going to give us a few do's and don'ts for your social media digital citizenship. We welcome Jesse Miller of Mediated Reality back to the show. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Jody. How are you today? I'm doing good. I, I can honestly say that I have found myself... Um, having posted something on Twitter, this was about six, eight months ago, and producer Ben Dooley can actually, he's nodding his head because he, he stepped in on my behalf because I honestly thought I was just posting something sort of random. And next thing you know, it basically goes viral down this spiral of like pulling me into a conversation that had nothing to do with my original post. And I didn't know how to get out of it. And you see that happening more and more on Twitter as the temperature seems to increase on social media with people, I don't know, like the president of the United States using it to bully people? Yeah, well, he's he's used the Twitter since its basic start uh, to really kind of polarize his brand. Right. Uh, but but one thing we have to keep in mind here is that Twitter uh, is a polarizing space. I mean, it's, it is what it is. It, compared to 10 years ago because of the way that people have polarized their messages against one another. And, and I think at its bottom line, uh, the people who have uh, invested interest, whether they be financial or, or creative, 
um, when, once that changes, uh, that entire space becomes something that is somewhat uh, benign because it would just be people being happy with one another, which is not exactly what we see in our everyday discourse of people driving from one point of town to the other or trying to merge onto a highway. Uh, but at the end of the day, when we look at how individuals are using social media, it is becoming more and more toxic with, when we see this increase of users. And compared to 10 years ago, we did not see people as actively using social media as we do today. And it, there's also a bit of that generational divide because 10 years ago, majority of users were under 50. And now we're seeing a huge group of users who are over 50 and having a lot of time online to really stir pots. As a social media educator, I mean, we often talk about kids' issues and teenagers and just young people in general and having a digital citizenship. Do that older generation that you're speaking about kind of feel entitled to just say whatever the heck they want on social media and just, you know, deal? So for the better part of 18 months, I've been analyzing how people 50 and over use Facebook mm-hmm. and how people 40 and over use Twitter. And in that Facebook space, we're seeing a lot of toxic posts from people who would identify that their age is 50 and over. And, and there is a bit of an emboldenment. There is a, a behavior of sharing of memes, political ideologies, uh, thought processes where digital citizenship and at the end, actually to its core media literacy is, is somewhat just removed from that group uh, because it meets a narrative that would either perpetuate a ongoing conversation, especially in politics, um, or also just opinions about that generational divide. We still see a large amount of content going on, really kind of maligning younger users of social media or those who are using their, their voice to target issues like climate change and protest. Um, but at the same time, because those users are more comfortable and maybe there's a little bit more downtime, we are seeing a little bit of a, of a switch in the way that we should be a little bit more aware of how users are, 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 are prone on social media, to your point, of uh, that pylon, because there's an innocent post that somebody thinks is humorous and not all of a sudden you have a, a grandfather or a grandmother who's being bombarded with people saying that's entirely not appropriate and how dare you even think to post it. And it's fascinating to me because Twitter in particular, because you can take you, the same person on Twitter and then follow them on Instagram and the temperature is about one-tenth as hot. Everything's sort of chill. Is it the photo piece that, or is it, is it humanizing of it? Is Twitter just so fast and furious and so few characters and just kind of comes across as terse that gets people so quickly riled up? I think it's how we choose our audiences. Uh, majority mm. of Twitter users are, pu- are public-facing, so they would, would say they'd have a public account. It's not private posts. But on Instagram, a large amount of people are private in their accounts, so they pick and choose and curate their audience. So you don't see that toxic piece where you have a random person commenting on an Instagram post because they're not privy to it. Whereas, as I mentioned, the majority of Twitter users, uh, we see them open. We see them just basically making comment or saying something in regards to any societal uh, event. And that's where that toxicity pops up. Jody Vance in for Simi this week. And we're continuing our chat with good friend Jesse Miller of Mediated Reality. He educates people on social media use and digital citizenship and literacy. People of all ages, right, Jesse? Your kids all the way through adults and beyond. Oh, very much so. And those audiences are so diverse, whether it's government, post-secondary, or talking to great kids in a BC school. There's a, there's no, no quiet days in this field. Nope, but I always come to you when I have a question about this, because your sage perspective, because some people just say, oh, it's all a cesspool. Not true. 
Oh, no, we've got some amazing things happening on social media. And I think it's the evolution of platforms. I mean, we were talking earlier about how we've kind of gone through these 10, 15 year increments of, of introduction and then these changes that are affecting all of us. Uh, but right now we're seeing a, a whole group of kids emerging on TikTok with some really powerful and, and inspirational videos. Um, I've actually struggled to find uh, content online that I think is newsworthy on TikTok that would go to that negative space. Uh, but that said, uh, Facebook still has this huge uh, grouping of users, and, and it still is an interesting dialogue as we head towards a federal election in the United States and uh, what we learned from our Canadian election in 2019 as Facebook was potentially weaponized. And that's a big piece of this. Like, make sure that Facebook isn't your sole news source because the algorithm is definitely arcing towards what you've clicked on in your history. Yeah, and within that too, also just your rooted biases. I find right. that people are so comfortable being in their silos of preferred mm-hmm. information that once they see something that's contrary to their value system, it automatically becomes this idea of fight uh, and and hide behind a screen as opposed to look at good good discourse that creates democracy. So that's a perfect jumping off place for this here because oftentimes you see strangers going head to head on Twitter, sometimes egghead unverified, lots of numbers in the handle to other egghead. Um, But what if it's people that you actually know, respect, might be in your circle, you might know of them and you watch, maybe something, something goes off and back and forth goes the debate and then it starts to get heated and they kind of, it, it almost feels like the people involved in the Twitter battle or storm or war or whatever you want to term you want to use, forget that there are so many others watching that. Yeah. Well, interesting you bring it up because um, my favorite discourse on Twitter is when you have verified accounts um, having conversation and and that conversation stays professional. Uh, This past week, we saw uh, two uh, retired NHL players. They're they're both verified accounts uh, to bring up pieces of junior hockey, to bring up dialogues that uh, have emerged from the NHL and and, and hockey environments in the past year involving uh, language and, and, and conduct towards one another. And it's so polarizing that one person's perspective then becomes this pile on of followers from whichever side of the coin you're on. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see that also in in journalism. We see that in editorial processes. Uh, But to that point of verified accounts, if you have an employer or if you're a personality that you've done something where um, you are verified online, just such as your account is, Jody, um, in that when you are putting out good information and then you're having contrast, that's what Twitter should be. It should be a, a place for discourse. But once it gets to personalize the tags and once it gets to commentary that, that very much is reflective of people don't have any other fight except for going after an individual um, because it's an easy shot, uh, I think that's where we start to deteriorate the value of what that public discourse looks like because we are taking a town hall and putting it into a mediated space. Uh, but more importantly, I think when it just comes down to how we use this tool is that it, the more people understand about how the tools themselves kind of polarize each user into a space where whether it's us choosing our audiences, people we follow, or when it comes down to it, stories that are just geared towards clickbait, you put it out there and you don't do your own due diligence to figure out whether or not it's valid or not. Um, that's where sometimes I think we are getting to a scary point of uh, uh, idiosity, actually. It's just, you know, you see something and it's it, there's no substance to it except for the, the ire that it builds. And I have had on a couple of occasions just said that is rem- remarkably hysterically wrong and just left the conversation or muted the conversation or blocked the person if, I, if I'm seeing it spiral in that way 
for when it's at me personally. And generally speaking, I don't get in a lot of these battles, but I've witnessed a number of them. And I'm wondering, and really my question for you, Jesse, is when I'm watching it, if it's people that I know and I feel like I can just like chime in to try and calm the waters, is that not a good idea? You know, I, I think these discourses on social media, especially in the public space, um, are, they, they benefit from individuals, especially verified accounts, giving a little nudge publicly mm. and saying, I, I think we've met a, a point here where we're not winning anything in this discourse. But I think there's actually more of an effect when somebody gets a direct message and it's a colleague of theirs saying, this isn't going to look very good tomorrow when we're right. talking about it in the workplace or, or further. And uh, what, what, what are you getting at, at the end of the day? And I think, unfortunately, most of us are fueled by this idea that we're a winner in an internet argument. And mm. to be fair, whether it's a slam dunk on somebody because you found a really good data set or an old screenshot, um, at the end of the day, it doesn't really do anything and we forget about it three days later. See, I've done that with the DM and said, buddy, what are you doing? And then I get like that screenshot is put up on Twitter as a, oh, and now so-and-so is DMing me. I'm like, oh, Jesus, that's didn't mean for that to be my next thing. Like sometimes it gets too hot to dip your toe into. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. We mentioned earlier kids. Uh, part of my new curriculum for students in the past year and a half is focused on digital consent. And just the idea oh. that just because we have tools where we can screenshot things, um, does it give you the ability to then take that private conversation and then pivot it to a public place? Um, you know, when it comes down to our emails, we have these signatures at the bottom that say, unless you're the intended recipient, you know, we expect you to delete this. Uh, but does that fine print actually dictate a relationship? And when it comes down to people screenshotting, whether it's from a group chat or whether it's something from a private uh, social media account and push to the public, um, we are seeing youth being better at that than adults. Hmm. And those kids are saying, you know, I got burned by some friend in middle school, you know, posting a group chat conversation to people who weren't in the group chat. Uh, they've learned their lesson. And, you know, it's something like I think most of us learn when we go through school prior to these tools about how to pick and choose your audience, those you trust, and what it means to have a friend burn you on uh, something you were expecting to be private. Um, now that we have these tools, we're seeing adults choose to do that more often. And like mm-hmm. I said, we're weaponizing aspects of this technology. The be- bigger question is, will our relationships be able to sustain it? Boy, oh boy, am I ever glad I have your phone number, Jesse. Thank you for that. No, not a worry. Thank you. Jesse Miller, find out more at Mediated Reality. Seriously, have him come and speak at your workplace. Like that was just a couple of segments. I learned a ton there. Carol James, finance minister, is at the podium unveiling the 2020 budget, which means we can now connect with Global BC online journalist based at the legislature. Richard Zussman is with us. Welcome back to the land of cell phones, Richard. Hi, Jody. It's good to be back. What have I missed in the world? Oh, boy. How much time do you have? Yeah, right. Exactly. Not much because we've got to talk about this budget. Let's dive into it, shall we? So the big thing here is a sugar tax on carbonated sweetened beverages. So the PSP on drinks like Coca-Cola, the exemption will now be removed. So we are seeing a 7% increase for the purchase of soft drinks like Coca-Cola, and that will come into effect on June 1st. It's one of two increased tax measures that are obvious in this budget. The other one, a tax on the richest British Columbians. So those that earn more than $220,000 will end up paying a higher tax rate, now set at 20.5%. The province is estimating that that will bring in $216 million in additional revenues this year. Wow. Okay, so a sugar tax and a wealth tax are the only two tax increases in this budget. Yeah, so those are the main ones. There are some other sort of um, 
side increases that we may see, one of them was raised as akin to what is a Netflix tax, which is basically effective July 1st of this year. There will be new registration requirements. So Canadian sellers of goods, along with Canadian or foreign sellers of telecommunication services, will be required to register as tax collectors oh. uh, for those with revenues exceeding $10,000. And that could amount uh, to, in essence, um, a tax on uh, product produce or um, content producers and is projecting to bring in about $11 million to the province's bottom line. Wow. Not an insignificant sum of money there either. Um, what else is marquee on today's uh, 2020, 2020 budget unveiling? Yeah, so let's go over sort of some of the big highlights, right? So obviously the number everyone likes to look at is the surplus. Yes. We knew it was going to be a balanced budget. The surplus is $227 billion this year. Next year, $179 million and projected to go up to $374 million three years down the road. That's a pretty slim uh, budget surplus, considering how big uh, the expenditures are in a provincial government. It's part of, you know, there's been these global economic forces that have um, taken a toll on British Columbia, but we still are the strongest economy in the country with the strongest credit rating. So that's all good news, but it's still one of those things where there has to be prudence, that Carol James has said. You know, a lot of this budget is being described here as a stand pat budget, not a whole lot of new spending or new investments. We actually saw a decrease or frozen spending in 13 government ministries. The only two uh, mainline ministries that saw increases were health and social services. So, you know, and, and the theme Carol James wants to get past in all this budget is this is a budget looking out for families and looking out on the general issue of affordability. Well, good thing there's no decreased or reduced on uh, health and social services because that would have caused right. a major outcry, especially with all the news leading up to this on how that silver tsunami is hitting our healthcare system and how we really need to be broadening out and, and expanding health services and social services, not contracting. And because health spending is a massive part of this budget, right? We've seen record-breaking health spending, and there are some advocates in here, uh, including Paul Kershaw from UBC, who says we should be investing more in social services and programs in order to help um, people's health long-term. That's sort of an internal debate uh, that will take place. But we're seeing the Ministry of Health budget climb over $22 billion, billion with a B, wow. for the first time ever. There's two other small programs that are worth mentioning as well, Jody, that can address affordability. The BC Child Opportunity Benefit was announced in last year's budget. Yeah. We'll be launching this October, and there's money now for it. It will benefit up to 290,000 families in the province. So families with one child eligible up to $1,600, two children up to 2600 and three children, I think, is about 3600 Also, there's a new need-based grant system for low-to-middle-income post-secondary students. So need-based? 40,000 students, yeah, need-based, so okay. economic need. Yep. Um, and there's a threshold there similar to a Canadian program. That's how they set the income thresholds. Uh, these 40,000 students in BC will be eligible up to $4,000 a year for programs under two years in length and up to $1,000 a year for programs two years and over. Wow, that's not insignificant as well. There are some nope. real solid, I don't, I don't want to call them goodies. There, there's some right. very thoughtful spending here. Yeah, and I was a bit surprised that we've seen some of that substantial stuff. Also, a little bit of uh, funding for revitalizing the forestry industry. But oh, yes. listen to this number. Okay, so, okay. 
just $13 million over three years to revitalize the industry. Now, when we look at the revenues to the forestry industry, the province was projecting that the 2020-21 fiscal, they would bring in $1.14 billion in forestry revenues. Well, that projection is now down to $867 million. So we know how hard, and I know there's a group of forestry workers and supporters standing on the lawn of the legislature right now. This is what they're speaking out against, is this frustration that we have seen this sector hit so hard, and the province is committing to helping revitalization, but there's no there, there's no way they can sort of accommodate for these losses that we're seeing in the industry. There's no filling that gap. That is a multi-hundred million dollar, multi-hundred million dollar yeah. gap. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and we're also seeing, you know, ICBC was something that everybody was looking at very, very closely mm-hmm. heading into this budget. It's now sort of treading water. Uh, making some money. Uh, this year, the projection is that ICBC will lose money once again, but it's not in the huge billion-dollar ranges we've seen in the past. They're expecting it to lose $91 million this year, but then looking forward, make $86 million 2020-21, make $148 million 2021-22, make $191 million after that, and that uh, accounts for the 20% discount on average on insurance rates that the province is promising when it moves to no fault on May 1st, 2021. I was going to say, it doesn't even move until May of 2021, and that amount of saving and then goes into the black? Yeah, so these savings are really factored in when they made the cap on settlement. Right, right, right. On April 1st, uh, which I know you've talked a lot about, the $5,500 cap on soft tissue injuries. Right. It just feels like there's like slow attrition towards it moving out of like deep, like billion with a B red. And right. and now we're actually, you know, staring down a possible surplus in a matter of years. That is fantastic. It's amazing yeah. to think, right? Where yeah. we were, Jody, and considering how much it's changed with these significant changes uh, that the province has put in. Now, I got a note about uh, some changes with regard to new benchmark mortgage um, testing. Stress test. Not anything that I've seen on the mortgage stress test provincially, and not something the minister was asked about. Housing, from what I've heard here, was there were some concerns that the province has actually reduced the number of low um, income units it plans on building, but overall it's sort of a steady, um, steady as she goes housing strategy. Education's the other one. Oh, do tell, Jody. Please. So I was, I was chatting with Terry Mooring, the head of the BC Teachers Federation. They were calling for hugely substantial funding um, around clearing up some of the gaps we see in some of the more rural areas of the province. Uh, the budget doesn't do that, but it does allocate $339 million in new funding over three years. The money's to hire 4,200 new teachers uh, to address rising enrollment, especially in uh, Surrey, Langford, I think Quitlam, they mentioned Abbotsford, some of the high growth areas in Metro Vancouver and here on Vancouver Island. But it does not address the issue the teachers have with their wages, where they believe they're uh, well underpaid, and Carol James made it clear today that the mandate is the mandate. Two percent over two percent, two 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 and two. Right. Two percent increases over three years is the best that the province can offer in terms of increases on um, on wages for teachers. But three hundred and thirty nine million will impact if it's towards uh, restocking right. teacher stocks. That's going to impact class size and composition, which is another piece of this puzzle. 
And, and a lot of it has to do with the regions in which are targeted. Yeah. And I think the frustration from Terry Mooring was that this is not directed towards the regions where they say there are undertrained individuals who are in the classroom and shouldn't be. Yeah, no doubt. Um, what about surgical wait times? Is there anything? Oh, good you, one. Yeah. I was looking at that one just now. Were you? Oh, there you go. Okay. Okay. The We're same brain. Fifty million bucks this year to address wait times. What was really interesting is the Ministry of Health and the health authorities haven't decided what surgeries to focus on yet. So over the next few months, they're going to start looking at some outliers to see where they can focus the attention on reducing wait times. One interesting stat I was given today is the big focus up to now, as many people will know, has been on hip and knee replacement surgeries. The province has cut the wait time so that the benchmark is more than 26 weeks. Uh, in 2017, 35% of people waited more than 26 weeks. Now it's out at 27%. And so the province believes with more funding and more focus and analyzing where they need the support, they can start addressing wait times in other sectors of the healthcare uh, sector as well. Where in this budget was uh, Indigenous reconciliation, Richard? So there was mentions around uh, Indigenous reconciliation and, and program funding aimed mainly towards young people. So there's discussion in the budget around support for children in care and extending benefits. And, and the province has alluded this to the past, extending benefits beyond children aging out. And I know aging out and foster care is not just an Indigenous issue, but it disproportionately Indigenous people are represented in our care system. No question. Uh, there's also better support uh, for Indigenous communities uh, in the education system as part of sort of the extension of reconciliation. And there's also a section here about titled Meaningful Reconciliation. And Budget 2020 supports reconciliation with the Indigenous peoples through new investments for the Cultural Connections Program for Indigenous Children and Youth in Care, the agreement with Young Adults Program and New Indigenous Justice Centers, as discussed um, in, in the budget. So that's, that's directly from page 19 of the provincial budget for those who have popped it up on their computer and are following along at home. Right, and we will have uh, lots more coverage of this as we go into it uh, in depth and on the Linda Steele show coming up uh, after the, your news till 2 o'clock. But I wanted to check in with you on this. I know you've been in lockup. You haven't had your phone. Everything that's been happening outside, you said there was a, the forestry protest, a peaceful protest on the lawn at the B.C. legislature. But what have you been hearing since you came out of isolation about protests who actually went to Premier John Horgan's home today. In all honesty, Jody, I turned on my phone and it was ringing and it was you. So oh. I haven't actually looked at anything. I, I know from conversations I've had with people here that had their phones mm-hmm. was that Premier John Horgan left his house this morning. There were protesters lying on his driveway. His wife called. He returned home. Arrests were made. I don't have any more details than that. Premier Horgan was furious that they would come to his house. Yes, I imagine um, that, so. That is that is my only understanding. Um, other than that, I've I've missed all of it. Thank you for answering our call, Richard Zussman, on what I imagine is... I'm way behind on the Twitter game, so i got to catch up. Okay, get in there, buddy. And I will retweet, because I appreciate you like that. I'm sure we'll talk tomorrow. Thank you. I'm sure we'll. Thanks, Jody. That's Richard Zussman. Uh, You can follow along online. Global BC online journalist based at the legislature.